Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. Shout out to Mohammed Sheikh, the National Campaign's Director of Critical Resistance, for encouraging me to cover this topic. When violent crime is discussed in mainstream echo chambers, is the term more likely to be associated with polluting lakes and damming rivers or a stabbing, for example? Welcome, Portia. Good to see you. I'll bet you all know the answer. Yet, which is overwhelmingly more catastrophic for people and the planet? What a deadly bias. Who and what benefits from that limited interpretation of crime? Who and what doesn't? There we go again with that disproportionate focus on individuals in a way that actually obscures institutional wrongdoing. So putting this in conversation with the weed that we were pulling that was hyper-individualism just a few weeks back, if y'all recall. I know, I miss you too. (laughs) So not only have conventional notions of crime in the settler colonial U.S. always been anti-Indigenous, anti-Black, classist, homophobic, and transphobic, but they also open the floodgates for incarceration, banking off of caged labor, increasing surveillance, ripping apart families, siphoning off taxpayer dollars from vital social services, and pitting communities against one another. Ultimately, one of the most dangerous and often overlooked consequences of quote normal end quote understandings of criminality is that they let these annihilationist companies off the hook as they're racing to push humanity off a cliff into unbridled climate chaos. So let's talk about it. 
Where does the term crime come from? How about we actually back it up for a moment and look at the etymology of this term? Let's see what it teaches us. Hopefully this is it right here. Oxford Languages, as you can see if you're looking at my screen, states that the etymology comes from Middle English via Old French from the Latin word for judgment or offense rooted in the sense of wickedness or sin. So that begs one initial question, who's doing the judging? Is it the ruling class? Is it colonizers? Is it us? This would be really relevant for us to pause and to sit with for a minute, especially say if we're tuning in from, for example, a settler colonial context, like maybe the US or perhaps Canada, to really pause and to ask, who got to define what crime is in these land bases, right? And what's going on there, right? Is it based off of a crime unto itself like colonialism? That's super relevant for us to just write funds and mentally ask at the beginning, right? Exactly, oof, yes, it's the ruling class and colonizers. So to get a sense, let's take it back historically real quick. I hope that much of this is gonna be review for y'all, although it absolutely warrants reiterating. So how about we start with the example of vagrancy laws? So you can see here, Risa Goloboff and Adam Sorensen provide the following synopsis of this obscene legacy. Quote, the crime of vagrancy has deep historical roots in American law and legal culture. Originating in 16th century England, vagrancy laws came to the so-called New Worlds with the colonists and soon proliferated throughout the British colonies and later the United States. Vagrancy laws took myriad forms, generally making it a crime to be poor, idle, dissolute, immoral, drunk, lewd, or suspicious. Vagrancy laws often included prohibitions on loitering, wandering around without any apparent lawful purpose, though some jurisdictions criminalized loitering separately. Taken together, vaguely worded vagrancy, loitering, and suspicious persons laws targeted objectionable, quote, out of place, end quote, people, rather than any particular conduct. They served as an ubiquitous tool for maintaining hierarchy and order in American society. Their application changed alongside perceived threats to the social fabric at different times and places targeting the unemployed, labor activists, radical orators, cultural and sexual nonconformists, racial and religious minorities, civil rights protesters, and the poor. By the mid-20th century, vagrancy laws served as the basis for hundreds of thousands of arrests every year. But over the course of just two decades, the crime of vagrancy virtually unquestioned for 400 years 
unraveled. Profound social upheavals in the 1960s produced a concerted effort against the vagrancy regime. And in 1972, the US Supreme Court invalidated the laws. Local authorities have spent the years since looking for alternatives to the many functions vagrancy laws once served. End quote. Can y'all believe that? I know that many of us might have studied this at some point back in the day, but it really, again, warrants refreshing, if you ask me. So, as was made plain in the very language of these laws, they disproportionately harmed poor and working class folks and activists and queer folks. Welcome, Parney and Muriel. Great to see y'all. Queer folks, other minoritized communities for centuries. As a matter of fact, my constitutional law professor in undergrad used to always say that poor people get arrested and incarcerated for doing in public what rich people do in private. Although you may have noticed, right, in that vagrancy law synopsis that we just looked at, those laws didn't even necessarily indict people for doing anything. The premise of their arrest and incarceration could be legit just for looking suspicious to an authority figure. Any idea who's disproportionately more likely to fit that category? So again, this is just like taking it back as we did to the etymology of the word crime, right? Being rooted in, in part, judgment, right? We've got to fundamentally ask who's doing the judging, right? Because of course that's gonna in part determine who gets judged and who doesn't, what gets judged and what doesn't. So furthermore, as hopefully y'all are well aware of already, enslaving folks convicted of crimes is legally protected in the settler colonial U.S. today by the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Like Ava DuVernay's 2016 documentary titled 13th clearly demonstrates. So who and what benefits from inaccurate mainstream understandings of crime? What up, Suleiman? Good to see you. Certainly the prison system, but also cops and the social service providers who also provide scaffolding for this entire racket and the entities as well that aren't getting scrutinized while all of our attention is being directed elsewhere through this massive diversionary campaign, such as so-called white collar criminals, like many a scandalous corporation. What I'm alluding to here is what many activists call a broader carceral logic. What does carceral mean? So according to Merriam-Webster, it's an adjective that means of, relating to, or suggesting a jail or prison. Now, I know that this is deeply personal for many of us for many reasons. For example, even at the most basic professional level, say for myself as an educator from California, the so-called colonial state of California, in my life, 
billions of dollars have been siphoned off into prisons and policing as opposed to, say, universities and colleges. So urban planners and social engineers and bureaucrats and these days app developers that are creating sentencing models and doing predictive policing, this is all wrapped up in that carceral logic that activists have been warning us about for literally centuries at this point. So they're all seeing our babies as soon to be profitable inmates rather than say learners. Some of our youth disproportionately more than others along predictable zip codes and various aspects of social location. So to take it back and to elaborate on a little bit of that in particular, especially if y'all are not familiar with this legendary resource, Dr. Ruthie Wilson Gilmore's 2007 book, Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California details a whole lot of this. Welcome, Madeline. Good to see you. So she says, quote, since 1984, and I'll actually pull up the quote specifically so that y'all can read along, California has completed 23 major new prisons at a cost of 280 to $350 million a piece. The state had previously built only 12 prisons between 1852 and 1964. The gargantuan new poured concrete structures loom at the edge of small, economically struggling, ethnically diverse towns and rural areas, end quote. And so again, that statistic is from a text that was published, again, several years back in 2007. And so you can only imagine how much more horrific the stats around this atrocity are at this point. And so how on earth, right, could something this horrific be enabled in a place like so-called California. So for one, to back it up, to be able to understand that, we've got to talk about the field that calls itself criminal justice, quote, end quote, right? Actually criminal injustice, if we want to be more specific, right? And precise in terms of our languaging. So I, for example, never use the phrase criminal justice because that's actually a bit of a sort of gaslighting, double-speak kind of misnomer that can actually enable this super atrocious diversionary campaign that we're talking about. So if y'all are in the settler colonial U.S., I'd also like to invite your attention to intentionality when it comes to our languaging. When we're talking about this, right, criminal injustice field. Because again, language matters. A lot of our loved ones get confused around these topics. So whatever we can do to be as precise as possible is really what's up here. You're welcome. And so many of y'all know that part of my professional training is as a political scientist and a philosopher. And so when I was in college at Cal State Fullerton, my poli-sci department 
was closely linked to the so-called criminal justice, quote unquote, department on campus. So there were often, right, in my poli-sci classes, a bunch of people that were studying, right, alleged criminal justice. Welcome, Grace, good to see you. And many of these, right, so-called criminal justice majors wanted to be cops or wanted to work in law enforcement. And it was common for them right before or after our classes to talk about watching cop shows legit as entertainment. So some of y'all might recall, right, for example, when we were younger watching, say, the television show Cops, right, this horrific copaganda. If y'all aren't familiar with that portmanteau, right, combining the word cop and propaganda <clears throat> into copaganda, it's something that we really need to take seriously, right? Or perhaps law and order, <clears throat> let alone today, right? So many of these, right, CSI shows. And the brainwashing was effective. So unfortunately, so many of our loved ones consume that propaganda, right? And presuming it's just entertainment, it's just a show, what's the big deal as they're popping popcorn? But the thing is, research has actually been done that demonstrates people are more likely to buy into law enforcement union, right? And lobbying think tank talking points if they absorb that kind of propaganda as entertainment, right? Someone sharing in the chat, my friend says she calls it the criminal justice system because it's criminal that it's allowed to exist. That's wonderful also. Again, languaging is super important when it comes to shifting consciousness and when it comes to clearing up illusion. So it's so vital for us to be taking these reframes super seriously. And so also, if folks are interested, I know many of y'all have heard me periodically reference this show that's a little bit of a watchdog in terms of media bias and specifically related to law that's called Citations Needed. And they actually have several episodes in particular about this. So especially the way that propaganda can just kind of normalize and naturalize, right, police talking points, pro-law enforcement talking points, and even at the most basic level, how about we back it up and put this in conversation with some of the critical media literacy that we've been developing together and building out all season long, what does it do to folks when the protagonist in a show, right, is a cop that we're supposed to, or a prosecutor, ostensibly be empathizing with or identifying with for multiple episodes, multiple seasons, potentially over the course of years and or decades, right? Welcome, Claudia. Good to see you. And Nikki asking real quick, a friend who worked in prisons, arts, theater for healing, says we need to call the people inside prisoners and not refer to them as incarcerated people. Is this generally understood in activist spaces? Nikki, do you want to elaborate on why they said that? And then we can write elaborate accordingly. So if you have any sense as to what their reasoning was, maybe we can get into that more specifically. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, and of course, there's so much also that we could get into here related to 
the criminalization of queerness, right? The criminalization of so many of our peoples and our social locations and our identities in ways that are profitable for all of these lobbies, right? So you, for example, say that so-called homosexuality is a crime and then guess what that means, right? Cops get to fill those quotas, incarcerating more queer folks, right? So that's more money for them, more job security for them, right? So as penal codes shift, right, as crime bills are enacted, right, then the understanding of crime and so-called criminals, right, expands or contracts accordingly, right? And so around that in particular, right, it's so important for us to look to what are some of these policies and some of these shifts that make it easier to justify, right, horrifically, right, skyrocketing rates of, let alone at all, any kind of incarceration of people just as normal, just as natural. So we can look at an issue that for a lot of folks is still contentious or controversial, right, and that is the issue of, right, intimate partner violence, right, or so-called domestic violence. So for example, taking it back to, right, the Clinton era, right, VAWA, or Violence Against Women Act, and just to back up real quick, so first off, right, this is something that some people call carceral feminism, right? So this is where, right, people say that they're concerned about violence against women, right, or sometimes domestic violence or interpersonal violence against children and regardless of gender more broadly, yet their proposed solutions are consistently carceral, as in more boots on the ground to use their typical military framing. So giving disproportionately more funding to cops and to prisons, right? Stricter sentencing and the like. But rarely do you see substantial funding and priority being given to prevention. And so the kind of culture changing endeavors that would actually end the problem to begin with, right? So Lauren sharing exactly, if the titles we use are counted by the oppressor and not those impacted, that is always a signal. You can say that again, right? We're gonna be talking about context clues to be on the lookout for in just a minute, so that's absolutely one of them. And you know, just as a little bit of an aside here, I don't use the term carceral feminism myself, and for the same reason, I don't use the term so-called, quote, white feminism, end quote, because why? If it's just for white women, that's not feminism. <laughs> so similarly here, if someone's strategy is about giving cops and prisons more funding to separate families and traumatize communities, that's not feminism. And again, taking it back to what we were just talking about a minute ago, words are important and feminism is important. So I encourage us to refrain from conflating something liberatory like feminism potentially with something oppressive like whiteness or carceral logics. And you know, around that as well, I do want to bring in just a few quick texts that are incredibly important for us to be taking seriously here. 
Uh, and just in case, right, folks might not be familiar with them. So one is incredibly legendary, right? So Professor Michelle Alexander's best-selling book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Uh, although then more broadly, a couple of texts that, welcome Steffi, good to see you. I really wish received more attention within the mainstream. Um, so to bring in a couple more. So we have here as well, Beth Ritchie's Arrested Justice, Black Women, Violence, and America's Prison Nation really warrants taking incredibly seriously, right? And so in addition to this text, another that I would sincerely suggest that people have a look at would be Andrea Ritchie's book, Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. And why in part would I wanna bring in these couple of texts here? How about we put some of what we've been talking about right now in conversation, right, with that seed that we were planting last week of context and taking attention to context super seriously? So why is it that we have to worry about cops sexually abusing us if they allegedly serve and protect? Who are they serving? or what are they serving, right? So if we put these inquiries into conversation with last week, right, with what context clues support our ascertaining, right, that can help us understand what's really going on, right? So what is really going on here? So for one, how about we pause and think about, right, who's the richest person on the planet right now? All right, Jeff Bezos, right, of this Amazon empire, using that term incredibly intentionally. Uh, and so, right, Lauren sharing that highlights that many an abolition worker disconnected from impacted folks. They read a lot, but don't have experience and community. Thank you for that point. There's so much for us to get into there and that we will talk about shortly, keeping it survivor-centered and ensuring that some, right, professionalization of the field doesn't end up completely diverting us from what could actually be, right, much more liberatory movements, right? So when we have Amazon, for example, right, and these other major movers and shakers at the heart of right, the surveillance state, Big Brother, right, trying to get, right, Amazon rings and Alexa and Echoes and all of these, right, forms of wiretapping, frankly, right, as intimately into our bodies soon, right, but on our wrists, on our ankles, right, in front of our front doors, in as many spaces as possible, right, we really need to take seriously the way that fear-mongering related to criminality just opens up the gates for people to accept the surveillance state. Like, I'm afraid, big brother, protect me, please, right? Because this is one of the things that we see happening within the mainstream, right, where that kind of snitching spyware, right, just gets totally naturalized, like it's convenient without people pausing to critically think beyond the commercials and the advertising to how dangerous that is, right? So again, this kind of, right, specter of so-called criminals or of criminality ushers in 
broad support for cops and for the surveillance state, right? So Big Brother saying to us in how much advertising, don't you want your loved ones to be safe? It's for the sake of your family, right? Yeah, someone sharing in the chat, it's so annoying how many people have ring doorbells. It is absolutely horrifying, right? People's uncritical acquiescence so often in the name of convenience, right, to these kinds of technologies that we know historically and we're currently experiencing are so much harder to reel back after they've been instituted than to, right, prevent them at the outset, that ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure, so to speak, right? Portia sharing ring, freaky, it always makes me want to misbehave, right? It's so incredibly dangerous, right, for people to just by default acquiesce to these carceral interpretations of safety and security. So give thanks, right? Women of color feminists, right? BIWOC feminists have for legit centuries been pushing back against these carceral interpretations of safety and security, whether it's in the name of violence against women, quote unquote, right? Or interpersonal violence more broadly, multidirectionally, regardless of gender, right? Or even externally internationally, right, when it comes to this sort of scepter of terrorism that we're supposed to be so afraid of, right, that is used, right, in this typical fear-mongering way, right, abroad to justify what, right, more money, more support, more funding for militaries, right, and the U.S. military-industrial complex and policing and law enforcement are in, right, interconnected in so many different ways that really merit are taking seriously, right? Like activists doing work resisting urban shields in the Bay Area and so many other areas have been teaching us about, right? And yeah, the thing is about the ring, for example, right? The surveillance doorbell system marketed by Amazon, there are so many examples, right, of, right, the kind of vulnerability that's increased, right, with this kind of excited early adoption of the so-called Internet of Things, right? And it's literally almost as if people have never watched any sci-fi, have never read any Octavia Butler, they probably haven't, right? Folks that might not have some healthy skepticism about the way that this technology can be weaponized against us. So this is, again, also part of why it's incredibly important for us to be pausing to remember and or create our own self-determined, right, understandings of safety and security, right? So we don't just get caught up in, right, these lobbyist and think tank talking points without even necessarily understanding that bigger picture of how it is they're being used against us. So... What would be, even if we wanted to engage in using the language of criminality, which by the way, we don't have to, that's something we could set down entirely, but if we were gonna use it, what might be, right, some usage of the idea of criminality that 
actually merits or possibly considering? Well, on this front, uh, spoiler alert, and it involves Franz Fanon, when doesn't it, right? We see he's probably come up at least once a week so far in this entire series. So how about we actually listen to Dr. Lewis Gordon speaking on Fanon's experiences as a psychiatrist working in Algeria during the period of French colonial rule as he discusses his book, What Fanon Said, a philosophical introduction to his life and his thought, right? So if we're gonna use this language, right, of crimes and criminals and criminality, let's at least see what some of our movement luminaries, right, even taking it back prior to this, right, modern, quote-unquote, abolitionist movement, what are some more, right, legit or on-point ways that people have talked about crime? So let's just have a listen real quick to Dr. Lewis Gordon talking about Fanon. Well, he found himself facing treating the torture, rare, and the tortured. And it's within that framework Fanon realized that he was dealing with what we call a sick society. And in fact, one of Fanon's positions is that you do not... How are you going to practice psychiatry, which is to make a person adjusted, attuned to a society, when in effect it makes that person, let's pick a person on the racism. How do you make a person happy with racism? And in fact, the problem that Fanon was facing is the problem of the happy slave, which for Fanon was an obscenity. So if you bring Fanon's forensic training, psychiatric training and philosophy together, you see how Fanon began to see the world he lived in. The world of colonialism for Fanon was like a crime scene. And in that crime scene were bodies around, people who were butchered, people who were harmed. But the problem he faced is that the people who called him to do the investigation were the ones who committed the crime. But he was asked to investigate it without acknowledging the criminals. Now, there's a definition of crime, right? If we actually want to continue to try to salvage this languaging, how powerful, right? So what did Professor Lewis Gordon just share with us, right? Quote, the world of colonialism for Fanon was like a crime scene. And in that crime scene were bodies around people who were butchered, people who were harmed. But the problem he faced is that the people who called him to do the investigation were the ones who committed the crime. But he was asked to investigate it without acknowledging the criminals. Does any of that resonate for y'all? If we wanted to, again, be more accurate, if there is anything salvageable about the language of crime, if we wanted to be a little bit more accurate or have more truth value in our words, right? Grace sharing 
felt that every day as a defense attorney, not being able to name the true, quote, criminals, end quote, exactly. And so this is something, right, Grace, like you're sharing, right, as a defense attorney, right, or how many of us in so many different spaces, right, professionally and otherwise are expected to go through these deceitful motions, right, with essentially our hands tied behind our backs, so to speak, without being able to actually name what it is we're dealing with, right? Muriel sharing absolutely resonates deeply, right? So this is absolutely consequential. If anyone ever wants to use this language of crime or of crimes or of criminality, criminals rather, right? Then we need to be honest. We're capable of being truthful, right? In the Gregorian calendar, it's allegedly 2020. We're allegedly allowed to say things. How about we say some things, right? When it comes to actual crime, right? Like formidable, ecocidal killing of the planet, omnicidal killing of all of the things, right? Lauren sharing, I don't know how much I want to salvage it, but everyone we trace the lineage of harm and violence as black people on this continent, we end at the same place, colonizers. Exactly, right? So we definitely don't have to salvage it, right? That's a very real question for us to contend with. And if we're gonna, and for folks tuning in from Turtle Island, right, there is absolutely no bypassing, acknowledging, right, the original criminality of colonialism, right? Colonizers wanting to steal a continent, stealing people to work and to manipulate that continent, right? Do we want to talk about crime? Then let's talk about crime. Because if not, then we get stuck, right, in this shallow, topical, right, attempt at, right, invoking or co-opting some language of healing, right, or this, right, totally played out weaponized language of coming together or of unity, right, without actually being able to fundamentally get to the root of the problems that we're talking about. If people want to talk about healing, right, or transformation, we need to talk about the wounding to begin with, who did it, where it came from, how it's being prolonged in the here and the now in this moment, right? It does me in how people in power can make intentionally harmful policy decisions that leads to the death of thousands, but we prosecute people for stealing food. Yeah, thank you for that comment. And isn't that a great segue into exactly, right, what it's important for us to contend with next, right? So more broadly, many people talk about the U.S. as trying to be the cop of the world. So while we're naming the need to right-size cops into nothingness, we could also talk about abolishing Canada and the U.S. as native goth girls only advocates in this meme that I'm sharing with y'all right now, right? And so how about we talk about the way that, right, fear and terror is getting weaponized against us as opposed to in the direction that would actually be more accurate for us to consider. The way that, right, fear gets embodied within so many of us and cultivated 
cultivated and groomed, right? It helps if we're afraid to get scammed into a surveillance state, like has already happened to us, right? So the language of terrorism is incredibly relevant here, right? And on that front, so shout out to Saeed Kishta for the graphic that they shared that reads, right? Let's just make it plain, quote, the U.S. government is the world's largest terrorist organization, end quote. Now, let me pause to ask, does that level of honesty make you uncomfortable? Or perhaps is that kind of truth-telling astoundingly refreshing, a magnificent antidote to the obscene gaslighting of court curricula, of corporate media, and the manifold propaganda we're swirling in. As an aside, whenever people speak in illusions by saying things like, quote, our democracy, end quote, when they reference the settler colonial US, they're giving away that they're not being trustworthy, Muriel sharing facts. They don't or won't perceive beyond these mainstream mythologies. Was this statement anything other than obvious to you? If so, it could have to do with this pernicious brainwashing that we are desperately in need of unlearning yesterday, right? That quite literal decolonization of our minds, the way that these, right, mainstream dangerous, right, so-called educational institutions have confused generations into not being able to perceive with this level of clarity, right? Exactly. As an aside, the U.S. government, the military specifically, also happens to be the world's largest polluter, truth. And that's part of why it's so important for us to be able to have clarity in how we're using this language, right? So that, in part, we can sufficiently merit being trusted, right? So Parney sharing, a police officer I knew said that American officers became focused on, quote, terrorism, end quote, after 9-11 and became the, quote, police, end quote, of the world. So that's exactly some of what is at stake here, right? If again, and this, there's a whole lot of merging here, right? So-called, right, domestically and internationally. Um, but if we really want to be magnificently honest, right? Also around the role that the languaging around terrorism plays here, right? How about we look at, right, Winona LaDuke's legendary question Someone needs to explain to me why wanting clean drinking water makes you an activist. Welcome, Jazz. Good to see you. And why proposing to destroy water with chemical warfare doesn't make a corporation a terrorist, end quote. So to exactly what y'all were just speaking to, right? So just like we've been breaking down right now related to the language of so-called crime, so-called criminals, so-called criminality, we can ask all of these same kinds of questions when it comes to, right, the definition of terrorism that is popular today. Who got to define that for us, right? And then what apparatus, right, the military industrial complex, I know it's such a powerful quote, right? Um, arms manufacturers, Halliburton, right, defense contractors, right, that are best friends forever with so many politicians that are making bank off of those industries, lobbyists in DC and in the Beltway more broadly, right? If they're, right, 
think tanks, right, or perpetuating as they have been for decades, right, their talking points, right, throughout the corporate media, throughout the core curricula in mainstream educational institutions, then people are going to be scammed like millions of our loved ones have been already into thinking terrorism is something that it most assuredly isn't, right? As, and for example, precisely like right, water protectors throughout the world, you're welcome, right, have been naming with clarity for us, right? We're really going to be afraid of some people trying to kick imperialists out of their country. Welcome, Eva, good to see you. As opposed to being concerned about stopping, right, these corporations that are making life virtually unlivable on this planet for us. What a horrific misunderstanding of what we're actually dealing with, right? And so also on that front, in case any of y'all aren't familiar with it, I'd really like to invite you to check out the BBC documentary Ah, there we go. The Power of Nightmares uh, by Adam Curtis, right? The same filmmaker that did The Century of the Self and so many other documentaries that we look at together in Liberation Spring classes. And the reason for that is because he really breaks down with some pretty epic archival footage within that documentary series that was available for free online the last time I checked, right? How fear-mongering operates on the part of so many different political entities, whether it's neoconservatives in the settler colonial US, in some limited instances, even potentially right certain Islamic fundamentalists and making connections that US neoconservative white supremacists probably wouldn't be super comfortable with saying like, oh, did you think that you were like opposed to so-called Islamic fundamentalism? Because y'all have a lot in common, actually. Aloha, Kevin, good to see you. So stoked that you could come through. And so on that front, right, this is one major concern for us to contend with. What's another? Have y'all noticed the increased criminalization of dissent? So as corporate criminals, if we're gonna continue to play with this language, are barely getting slaps on the wrist for trashing our planet, like some of y'all were just bringing up, right? So this criminalization of dissent is also a huge concern for us to take seriously, quite noticeably including protest. So I hope it wasn't lost on us that in her confirmation hearings, one of the First Amendment rights that now Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett failed to remember was what? The right to protest. I hope that raises an epic red flag for folks that a Supreme Court Justice today, when she was actually being confirmed, was like, so tell us about those rights in the First Amendment. You've got to remember them. You're about to be a Supreme Court Justice. And she forgot the right to protest, right? Not inconsequential, right? Someone sharing, quote, anti-Antifa and quote people, exactly, right? So again, the idea of taking issue with fascism, getting criminalized, there are so many different examples of this that we could look to, right? So we're in magnificent company when we take seriously all of our folks, right, that get criminalized within this ridiculous settler colonial empire of the U.S., right? 
right? And the Canadian ridiculous settler colonial empire too. They also have an empire, right? Another dialogue for another time. Uh, and so we really need to talk about, right, some of these policies and issues. I know what a meritocracy, equal opportunity criminalization in the U.S., unless you're a corporation, even though they're allegedly people. Uh, and so what's one of the reasons why it's important for us to be talking about all of this right now? Alas, right, if we were not already over enough talking about the settler colonial U.S. elections, right? The right incoming President Biden and Kamala Harris are all about just about everything that we just said, right? Do we need to take it back to, right, the 94 crime bill that Biden in part authored, right? So it's incredibly important for us to take seriously some of these legal concerns, some of these policy concerns, right? And particularly because Unfortunately, so many folks are just all up in their partisan echo chamber or so caught up in right representative politics that take on right a kind of topical or superficial take on identity politics that really conveniently ignores focus on the politics, right? And so that's incredibly dangerous, right? And so for those of us that are paying attention here, right, it's incredibly important for us to recognize Ooh, you know what this means, right? The surveillance state is just going to be enabled even further, right, with these cop, right, and pro-cop, right, enablers, right, at the helm of the U.S. settler colonial empire, right? Portia sharing, yes, this is why celebrations are not what we need right now. Pay attention. Exactly, right? And yeah, someone sharing, the amount of hope people place in Biden makes me despair. You can say that again, right? So for those of us that are actually here for collective liberation, what is it that's so incredibly important for us to be holding these politicians accountable in terms of, right? Like, how about you dismantle all of that, right? If you're pandering to folks that you say that you're ostensibly representing or that you're allegedly wanting to be accountable to. And so on that front, I can imagine at this point, y'all might be wondering about formidable alternatives to criminality as a framework. Do you have any questions about any of this that's come up so far? If so, feel free to share in the chat. Uh, and as we are beginning to wrap things up for today's session, I would just share that abolition and transformative justice are two super formidable alternatives, right, or solutions, so to speak, right, to so much of the ridiculousness that we were just talking about. And we're going to be getting into, right, abolitionism actually on Saturday when we do some seed planting. And in particular, right, taking immensely seriously so much right tremendous abolitionist genius that the organization critical resistance has shared with us over the decades uh, and so i hope y'all are able to come through to get into right some of that this weekend but between now and then, right, one question that I would want to attend to came from El Boogie, who shared, 
Hi, thanks for this work. I'm wondering how us Black and Indigenous folks impacted by policing and incarceration can find ways to remind white, non-impacted people who are centering themselves in this work to get the fuck out of our way in a way that doesn't drain us and burn us out. I'm finding myself consistently triggered and drained these days, and it's hard to sustain my work as an activist, community supporter, and all of the other identities I hold that sometimes involve bringing white folks along with care that's hard to summon right now. So thank you so much, El Boogie, for that question. A savior complex within them that just needs to end yesterday right whether it is the white savior industrial complex or even unfortunately sometimes a BIPOC savior industrial complex so this is why right we just need to be totally non-negotiable right in our commitment to right what I call survivor centered approaches right or like you named here right taking seriously that right Communities that are most impacted by a form of oppression are gonna be the folks that are in the best place to be able to know ways to deal with that problem, right? And so let me share just a little bit of a thing I'm not meaning by that. That doesn't mean that, right, folks who are able to shouldn't be kicking down funds to critical resistance and to other abolitionist organizations, right? Yes, I'm sharing so many people around me are assimilated to hell and back. Yeah, if only that wasn't the case, right? The propaganda is so well-funded and is so sleek these days. And unfortunately, so many of our imaginations have been so tragically co-opted and totally unnecessarily. So yeah, Saturday is going to be a real gift for our imaginations. I'm so, so stoked to be getting into talking about, right, the gift that abolitionism is for those of us that care about standards and dignity and respect, whether it's self-respect or respect to other folks or our potential, right, or capacity for people that act like they, right, have an imagination or a spine or a conscience. So we're going to be going there in a big way shortly, right? Uh, but again, when it comes to, so again, white, non-impacted people who are centering themselves in the work, whether that is, say, somebody that's just right into careerism, so they want a cozy position within the nonprofit industrial complex for the sake of their job security, right, or whatever that might be. Yeah, that's just completely unacceptable and needs to be named as such. So this is one of the reasons why, right, for example, for myself as somebody that is, right, working in a project that is grassroots, that does have independent people's funding, it's really important for me to be saying this this clear you're welcome for sure. And the reason for that is because, right, for how many of my loved ones in the academy are working in the nonprofit system right now, so often there is this pressure to tiptoe on eggshells around these kinds of truths because that's the way that we've been groomed into so-called professionalism. Welcome, Sande. Good to see you. So glad you could make it. And so the thing is around that, right, being groomed to pander to white supremacy as professionalism is trash, right? We just need to non-negotiate 
comfortably say that, are being groomed to center and to coddle the fragility of opportunists and that fronting as professionalism or professional development is horrifying, right? For those of us that have a sense of ethics, right? Or for those of us that care about right relationship, not being sketchy, not being scandalous, right? And so on those fronts, especially for any of us that happen to be in right a position to be able to speak with a little more insurgent truth-telling or even sharing of curiosity, that's why this is absolutely non-negotiable, right? Because so many of our loved ones are in a place where they might feel as if their job or their livelihood or putting food on the table is threatened by saying something like, you shouldn't have that job, go somewhere else, right? Like if you're actually ostensibly pretending to care about this movement, how in the hell, right, are you not going to be making space, right, to be able to center via scooting out of the center, right, the folks that are most directly impacted? So, for example, and I might talk about some of these incredible memories a little more on Saturday, back when I was an undergrad, I did have the incredible opportunity to actually intern at Critical Resistance's, right, Southern Central LA chapter. And this is one of the things that was absolutely non-negotiable there, that, right, the folks that are at the center of the prioritizing and the organizing within this, right, most well-known, right, abolitionist organization in the settler colonial U.S., are gonna be the folks who are most directly impacted. And the same goes for, if we're talking about specifically doing right anti-violence organizing. So without sharing too many more spoiler alerts to be continued around a whole lot of this on Saturday. But out of respect for y'all's time, we can go ahead and begin to wrap up. So please do feel free to share this out if you know anyone that might find some of these ideas beneficial. If you're able to kick down any kind of funds via Patreon or PayPal, that would be super appreciated. Um, and please cite your sources if you are so inspired, whether it is some of the rad sources that I shared with y'all, please feel free to check out some of those texts um, or anything that I might've shared more specifically. All right, y'all, thank you so much for coming through. I'm really looking forward to hopefully also seeing you on Saturday. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyay, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil. Deceitful and coward, people in power. All power to the people is the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours.